Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode eight of Breaking the Surface. We have a really fascinating conversation in store for you today. We're going to talk about uh, wealth inequality and the ethics behind the ultra wealthy and, and loopholes that are available to the ultra wealthy that aren't to the everyday person. This um, article that spurred our desire to talk about this is from ProPublica.org, and I wanted to hit you guys right out of the bat with uh, just this this kind of summarization of this inequality and um, give you guys something to chew on right away as we discuss a little bit more in depth. And so um, a part of this article that was taking the 25 richest Americans and quantifying just how unfair the system has become, not for them, but for people like us that are around this table. So by the end of 2018, the 25 wealthiest Americans were worth a combined $1.1 trillion. For comparison, it would take 14.3 million ordinary American wage earners to put together their wages to equal the same amount of wealth. And so I think that would be, if I am reading it correctly, maybe about 14.3 million people that are all making about 70,000 a year. I don't know what the math is. You could figure it out. Um, The personal federal tax bill for the top 25 wealthy Americans in 2018 was 1.9 billion. Sounds like a lot, right? Yeah, but the bill for the average wage earners combined was 143 billion. Did that stand out to you guys as much as it did to me? Uh, Yeah, and I I must say, I feel like I really qualify to talk about this because there's been times that my wife and I have had hundreds of dollars in the bank at once. (laughs) So I speak from a place of knowledge here. Uh, when I first read the article, Taylor, I mean, the numbers are so big for me. It's, it's kind of hard to wrap my mind around, but you're right. I saw that one stat, like 1.1 billion. Oh yeah. But then you do the percentages and it's when you start to look at the percentages that you realize there's a real disparity between what's happening between different uh, wealth classes of people. Yeah. And I think I remember a big takeaway from the article as part of the reason for that is the way that wealth is calculated and taxed. So a lot of these wealthy people, like a a large majority of their wealth is tied up in like stocks, which they're not getting taxed on for like their personal income until they actually like cash out the stocks. Same thing with like inheritances when we pass down, you know, generational wealth, it's taxed differently than just our normal like income tax that you and I have. So a lot of us average Americans don't have stock interests, you know, to offset our um, tax losses. We don't have um, inheritance taxes that we're dealing with. We're just, you know, we have a W-2, we're working jobs every year or 1099 or whatever it is, and you just have your income tax. So yeah, there's definitely, I think a lot of inherent things built into the system. Plus you can afford expensive attorneys and CPAs who can help you figure out how to best game the tax system. I think we've seen Trump and many wealthy people know how to do that pretty well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The article 
really starts out by just saying that essentially, if you read the article, their their um, idea behind it is to demolish the cornerstone myth of the American tax system, which would be um, in its purest form that everyone pays their fair share, which would then mean that the richest Americans pay the most. However, the IRS tax records, and there's a bunch of stuff in this article, we'll link to it, show that the wealthiest can legally, so this isn't just dirty business, uh, but it's, it's legal, well, it might be dirty business, but um, it is legal, pay income taxes that are only a tiny fraction of the hundreds of millions, if not billions, that their fortunes grow each year. And we'll talk about there was, particularly throughout COVID, where their net worth just skyrocketed, unlike most people's, most regular people's during during the time of COVID. I think for me, what I was interested in having a conversation about this was, is because it ties into a much bigger issue of wealth inequality in the country. And I think this myth that exists in America that, you know, if you work hard enough, everyone pulls themselves up by their boot, boot, boot stri- straps, braces, mm-hmm. one, of those things. One, of the, one of those boot things you pull yourself up by. It's such a false idea. You can't even say it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it doesn't come out easily, but yeah, but this idea that like you can just work it hard and then the people who are the wealthiest have, you know, obviously worked the hardest. And I think it's clear. And, and the core correlative of that is that people who are poor have not worked hard. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a very important um, correlation that I, I would like to talk about more. Um, but I think it's, there's so many areas of our country, whether it's the tax system, um, whether it's the criminal justice system, definitely um, corporate subsidies. Like there are so many areas of the country where just having wealth, gives you an, an unfair advantage and an extreme amount of um, benefits that other people don't enjoy. And so like you were saying with this ProPublica article, the idea is like none of us really want to give the government our taxes. Like it's not fun to pay taxes, but we all do it because it's like we all share these common goods of roads and schools and all these things. But when you see this, it makes it very clear that no, like that burden does oftentimes fall more harshly on the backs of poor working Americans than it does on the wealthy. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder if that's part of the reason politicians will champion continuing to raise the percentage that the most wealthy need to pay because they know they won't actually pay what that percentage is. But if they continue to raise it, it might get them to a point where they can't help but pay an amount that is somehow in parity with everyone else. I, I don't know. I'm just okay. wondering. So like, even if they outlined, Hey, if you make this much over, I think somewhere in the article, it had said that some of the ideas that they're presenting in terms of making some changes to the tax rates would be anything over $50 million is taxed at like 39% or something like that. So you're thinking they might still weasel their way out of that 39%, but it could still mean more money than what was coming into the system. Yeah. I'm just saying that based on what this article is showing, and it does seem to be the case that the wealthier you are, the easier it is to find the loopholes that you can use. So you end up not paying what it looks like uh, on paper. Mm-hmm. I, I do just wonder, and I, I don't have an article to point to for this, but Perhaps it's just a way of trying to raise it artificially high so that what actually is paid is in line with what everyone else is paying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was talking about that the ultra wealthy or in a lot of cases, not even ultra wealthy. I think when we say ultra wealthy, we're probably referring to billionaires. But there are a lot of people that are super, super wealthy that aren't necessarily billionaires that probably benefit from some of these same things that you or I don't. But their wealth derives from things that have skyrocketing value of like assets, like stocks and property. And those just aren't things that the normal person has. And so those are distinct advantages that I think you can only get through having 
large sums of money that doesn't have anything to do with how hard you work necessarily. Yeah. I mean, so much of the wealth in this country comes through inheritances. So I think, you know, for me, there's like just some really toxic ideas that like permeate the American system. One is what we talked about with like how hard you work is correlated to your wealth. Or if you're poor, you haven't worked hard enough. That's not true when, you know, Jeff Bezos is getting six figure loans from his parents to start his career or the Trump kids are getting money. Donald Trump got a lot of money from his dad to start out. So sure, if someone can give you 500 grand when you're starting out, that might help you get a little bit of a head start in your hard work ethic for mm. life. Yeah, I thought Bezos worked out of a garage for a long time. Right? That was also Bill Gates. But have you seen the old uh, Amazon photos where it's like a spray painted Amazon sign and it's Bezos sitting in a garage like typing away on a computer? And yes. it's just imploring people like if Bezos can grind like this and make something out of himself, you can too. And I'm just like, that is so out of touch. And I think it is about, it was about 250 grand. If I'm remembering correctly, that he got as a loan from his parents when he was working in that garage just before he launched Amazon. So that definitely helps. Another one I think would be like trickle down economics, like this idea, if we pour wealth or tax credits into the upper um, echelons of wealth that'll somehow trickle down the rest of us. I think a great recent example of this would be the tax cuts that the Trump administration punt, like pushed through, hoping that it would you know, stimulate the economy and that those um, corporations that got those tax cuts would pass them down to the workers. What actually happened is they poured those tax cut savings into stocks buybacks so that they could make more mm -hmm. money. They, it just does not work. The trickle down thing does not work. And so for me, I just think we have all these outdated ideas that hang around in our society that keep perpetuating these cycles of wealth inequality. But they also more insidious to me are sort of some of the reflections about moral character that get tied to wealth and mm -hmm. how we reflect on poor people versus wealthy people. So I think it's important we make a distinction as part of this conversation. I, I feel like there's probably maybe two or three different tracks we could go down with this. One is, I think when it comes to the discussion of moral character or the ethics of wealth, we need to distinguish between someone who, while they are wealthy, let's say it's a business owner and they have a, a business with 500 employees and they're doing really well. If you look at that business owner, though, and you see their employees and they are taken care of, they're paid well, they are happy, they're flourishing, and he and the owner is still getting wealthy. I think we look at that and go, well done. Mm -hmm. You've invested into this company. You've taken the risk. You're being rewarded for it. Awesome. But your employees also, uh, you are taking care of them mm -hmm. versus the, the business owner who gets rich on the backs of others, not paying them enough, not giving them benefits all those types of things. I know there's a company here in Traverse City that has an excellent reputation, very large company. Their employees love working for them. And I know some of the owners and the owners are, are doing just fine, <laughs> but, but so are their workers. Mm -hmm. And you look at that and you go, okay, um, hats off to everybody. I'm, I'm glad this is working out well. So I think it's important we make a distinction that we're not necessarily calling out people who have wealth or even great wealth. Um, and I don't know if we want to get to like, if there's limits to where something becomes um, unethical, but I just want to make that distinction as we're talking. I think that's a good distinction to make because when I look at companies and I'll, I'll name check companies like Amazon and Walmart, where it's pretty well documented how much their workers struggle. I mean, Amazon, some of the warehouse conditions are almost like indentured servants. Is I that mean, the workers 
peeing in their truck story this last year. Yeah, there was that. There's just people collapsing in warehouses. There were cases where people have died in warehouses and people were expected to keep working around a body that was on the floor. Yikes. I mean, really horrific conditions. Yeah. Um, there's been studies about the amount of workers who work for Walmart who are on food stamps. It's just it's it's really disheartening. And so when I look at that and see those billionaires, I mean, for Jeff Bezos to add like, I don't even know, even like a $4 per hour increase for every employee, how much does it really dig into his personal wealth? He's one of the wealthiest people on the planet. So that is where I start to get into the idea that you're right. I'm not trying to demonize having money or being successful or working hard, which it seems like anytime you get into questions of wealth inequality, people get very defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, for the reasons that you mentioned, but I do think there are limits to wealth. I'd be interested in having that conversation Mm -hmm. (laughs) of when it becomes corrosive. Mm. Um, And also the definition that you outlined, Anthony, I think is great that I think, you know, almost to like a biblical terminology, like looking at the fruit of the tree, Mm -hmm. how you use and steward wealth, I think is really important. And if you're using it to help flourishing around you of other humans, great. If everyone around you is miserable and you're rich, I think there's probably a problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a, like immediately where my mind went. And the question I was asking myself is like, can even someone who starts out like with they're just the most ethical person you can think of? Is there a line where having a certain amount of money compromises their ethics? And I think it. you talk about, um, gosh, what's it called when you get money from? People before you inheritance, inheritance. Yeah. yeah. So when, you, when inheritance you, and bootstraps are the yeah, tricky yeah. words today, right? right. <laughs> Where there's very few examples that I can think of. Like I, Bezos, I kind of did think he like had the bootstrap mentality. I didn't know that he was given such a large sum of money. A lot of people uh, think that Trump was the self-made man and he got huge sums of money given to him. Um, it's really hard, I think, to find like real actual examples of someone who is like living in poverty and then all of a sudden becomes a billionaire. Like they just seem like really rare stories. But if that does happen and you you seemingly start out as someone with a lot of ethics because you're a normal person, can you be compromised by some amount of money? And what is that line? And I think it's probably not a clear answer because people's definitions of compromise also changes. Like we all kind of know at this point that Bezos is not really a good person. (laughs) So if we know that, is he actually compromising his ethics? Like if he's not a good person, is he compromising those ethics? He doesn't really have any. If he doesn't care. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think a great contrast to that would be his ex-wife, Mackenzie, who, you know, they divorced and then she got a huge, you know, um, alimony payment from the Amazon wealth. And she has systematically spent the last few years creating this whole team around her who are evaluating nonprofits and service organizations across the country and dumping billions of dollars into them and doing it in a very organized way where they're vetting the agencies, they're vetting the needs, um, they're making sure the money is going to be used responsibly. We actually had a bunch of that money pour into here in Northern Michigan with Goodwill and some of our agencies up here. But that's someone who is like, I am going to give away uh, as much of this wealth as possible. Um, I think another example might be Tyler Perry, who I think did have more of what you're talking about, Taylor, okay. with a background that wasn't very wealthy, has massive entertainment wealth now, and is pretty well known for using it for scholarships, for trying to lift up other black youth, like very generous, um, kind of well known for that. So I think Anthony and I have had conversations before about the corrosive aspect of power. Mm-hmm. 
And I would put money in the same category where I think the consolidation of too much of it in one individual or one system, like a church, like a mega church, for example, tends to be highly corruptive. Um, and I think all you have to do is look at, if you're religious at the New Testament, and I could, we could cite many verses about money and Jesus overturning temple, you know, money. It's the number one talked about topic in the yeah. Bible. It seems pretty clear that uh, the message was not that, hey, a lot of money is going to be good for your soul. <laughs> it's usually the opposite message. I'll <laughs> let the pastor take that no, one. But <laughs> No, I, I'm glad you brought up the conversation we had a while ago on our podcast about how it certainly looks like the more power you get, it there tends to be an almost inherent corrosive effect that comes with it. And you really have to guard your heart, which also includes putting safeguards around you just to limit yourself. And it does seem to be the effect of money. I mean, I know people with a lot of money who are generous and I, I don't question their hearts, mm -hmm. but I think the more money you get, the more you have to guard yourself from what the power that comes with it does. Mm. And, and I'll, I'll say that noting, I haven't really had the opportunity to experience that, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think you can look at the world and just notice that. Yeah. I like the idea behind those safeguards because I do think that there are moments as you accumulate wealth, there are inflection points where you can decide to go one way or the other. Like, is this going to be an ethical action I'm about to take or is it not? And if you uh, tout yourself as a really ethical person and you are an ethical person, then I almost think you're more prone to that, particularly if the wealth like accumulates really quickly. I would think it can just change you really fast. And the other thing I was thinking about, we had slightly mentioned politics, but the conversation almost feels hopeless because there's such a overlap between wealthy and politics. Either politicians are wealthy mm -hmm. themselves and that's how they were able to get into into uh, politics to begin with, or they're under the thumb of the wealthy, like the wealthy are calling the shots or donating to their campaigns or helping them make sure that they can get reelected in a couple of years, whatever it is. So I, it, it's frustrating just to think about because there is that, that um, overlap between wealth and politics. Yeah. You have the wealthy making policy about wealth. Mm -hmm. Anthony, I did do a previous podcast about power. There were studies that I had brought up in that podcast about how the more powerful you are, there's actually a psychological effect that demonstrates that your empathy gets reduced. Um, and I think that would probably be the same for money. I would guess for the same reasons that you just don't have to think about what it's like to suffer at all. And I think suffer is, suffering is one of the main things that cultivates em empathy. Um, the other way is it, it, it insulates you from the consequences of your actions. So we've definitely seen with the wealth in this country, whether it was with bailouts during the 2008 crash or just the criminal justice system in general, wealthy people do not get criminalized and punished the same way that poor people do. Poor people have to sit in jail if they can't pay bail. They can't afford good attorneys. Um, people of color are definitely uh, targeted more than white people are. And there's already a wealth uh, difference between those two groups. So if you're able to be like a white collar criminal, you're bilking the government for, say, billions of dollars and you just have the right attorneys and you don't have to get criminalized or don't have to go to jail the way poor people might. How is that a fair criminal justice system? Not only is that inequitable and it raises problems about the system itself, but as an individual, I think it's so corrosive for your moral growth to never have to face consequences for your actions and wealth and power are both dynamics that allow you to be completely removed from those consequences. There's a fairly infamous moment in Jeffrey Epstein's life or a chapter where when he was fairly young, 
he was partnered up with a guy and they were doing some stuff on wall street. And it was like a scandalous, like they bilked people out of an incredible amount of money. And he skated scot-free while the other guy went to jail. Mm. And I, I've wondered when I was reading about the history of his life, if that wasn't a key, like light bulb moment for him, like I can get away with stuff mm-hmm. because after that, the, the really terrible things that he began to do sexually, it seems like it began to escalate. And I, I don't know that it's a proven connection, but I remember reading about that and thinking that is not a good sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you assume if you could get away with minor things that it would start to build a confidence in you that like, oh, mm-hmm. and, and not even build a confidence. I think at some point it actually, because we're good at self-justification, it actually makes you think you're not ever doing anything wrong. Like you can just like heart, you know, Harvey Weinstein, like justified mm-hmm. the way he treated women, like, you know, Hollywood's transactional and we're consensual. And this is helping women out too. completely had no sense mm-hmm. of, I think, honestly, what a monster he was. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. he really convinced himself it was all fine. Yep. It, well, it just makes me have to ask myself, like, are there smaller examples, obviously in my own life where there's yeah. things that I'm compromising on that before I, I never would have thought I would have. Is there a building in my own life at times? Okay. So today we are drinking a, uh, a kind of new beverage to the area. It is, um, from Leelanau tea. And, uh, these guys just have started making a couple different products. They have a sweet and unsweet cherry tea. They have a cherry lemonade, and then they have a cherry half tea, half lemonade. Um, Kevin Van is the founder of Lilano tea. It just launched in April and I've been hearing some things about it. So I brought some today for us to try. We have the unsweetened cherry tea, no sugar added. It's only 30 calories, 30 calories a serving, which is the whole bottle, which is the whole bottle. So it's very low cal. Um, you've got your cherry antioxidants in there. It's basically just brewed black tea with a tart cherry concentrate added to it. And I am enjoying it quite a bit. I don't know what you guys think, but yeah. I mean, I, I strangely obsess maybe over my hydration and especially when it's 90 degrees outside and I'm like drinking this tea. I'm like, this is actually exactly what I need right now. The hydration factor is there. <laughs> I grew up in the South, so I'm usually a fan of sweet tea, but I got to tell you with every sip I'm taking of this, I'm enjoying it more. <laughs> yeah. Well, so stay hydrated. It's very hot right now. It's probably the reason I brought tea today. I just thought something cool to keep you cool. And then of course we're up here in cherry country and sometimes I hate how much cherry is in everything up here, but this is not <laughs> sweet. It doesn't have that fake cherry taste. It's just a nice tea with a little bit of cherry to mm-hmm. it. So that is Leon on tea. Thanks guys. Can I go back to something we were talking about a little earlier? It's just kind of uh, this uh, pull yourself up by the bootstraps idea. See, I, I nailed it. You said it, it. so I well. It. That was, oh, that was inspirational. Right <laughs> he, must, he must think it works. <laughs> uh, did you guys read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers? Yes. Yeah. So I think that's the book that's famous for the 10,000 hour rule. Mm-hmm. So he was talking about things that have characterized the outliers, and that is people who are remarkably successful. And he said, of course, they are hard workers. That's the 10,000 hour thing. Of course, they have some type of gift or skill that they are using well. But I remember two other things he pointed out that stood out to me. One was that they are born at opportune moments Mm. and they would not be who they are if they weren't born within this fairly narrow window Mm. of something where they got in on the front end of the thing and they took off with it. And the other thing that stood out to me was how they all had some unique advantage when they were young. Mm. Uh, It wasn't just a purely they were like everybody else. And I I don't remember if it was Bill Gates or if it was uh, who's the founder of Apple, Steve Jobs. Mm was one of those two that their parents worked at a college when they were young. And that college 
had some of the first really great computer systems back when they took up whole rooms. And he snuck in at nights and on weekends into the college and spent years having advantage or having access to something nobody else did his age. And so all of those stories, while he wasn't discounting how hard they worked to use what they were given to, to flourish, they, they weren't stories of how anybody can do it. There had to be some things in place that all came together. Mm. That's mm. really, yeah, that's really interesting because the hard work clearly was there. He, yep. They chose to yep. go in and, and spend time with the computer. Oh, it was ridiculous. Yeah. He would sneak out of his bedroom and spend all night there and go to school the next day. Yeah. I mean, they were hard workers, not discounting that in the least, but there was other things in place that were given to them that were not given to others. It doesn't make them bad people. It just means... They they had some advantages early on that others didn't. You see that so much with like entertainers when because I love pop culture and you'll hear them, you know, doing interviews or talking about their childhood and how many had parents who were willing to take time off work and mm -hmm. drive them constantly to auditions or invest tons of money into dance classes or singing lessons or whatever it is. And I agree. It does not discount. Like, I think all of us benefit in some ways from different kinds of privilege, different kinds of luck. A lot of times it's mm -hmm. just luck too. And I think the hard work thing comes in and like, you know, if, as long as you're working hard, you're prepared to take advantage of those benefits or that luck. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, you can't describe the hard work, but yes, I, I do feel like a lot of times, especially when it comes to things like wealth or power, people are more inclined to go completely in the direction of egoism, where it's like, I did this 100% myself. I'm an island, yeah. mm -hmm. regardless of the people who helped maybe build your company or get you where you are or invested in mm -hmm. you. And I just think that's such a dangerous attitude to have. One, because I don't think it's true. And two, because it just feeds a sort of egoistic narrative um, that I think becomes kind of damaging to your character over time, where yeah. you don't recognize the contributions of either life or the people around you. Yeah. That, so I can give an example from my life that you know, this has wealth and power aren't necessarily present at the level we're talking about, but um, <laughs> close, Taylor. We're, we're getting there, right? I'm building an empire. Um, no. So I was presented with the opportunity last year to start my own business. And I get a quite a few people that, you know, if they're working the nine to five, they're, they're just like really fascinated with that. And I think in a lot of ways, also a little envious of, you know, the position that I'm in and that I can call my own shots and do all these things. And when they ask me like, Hey, how did you make that leap? Or how did you do that? I have to remind myself to be as honest as possible, which is to say, my wife is the breadwinner. She is still the breadwinner. And that is the only reason why I was able to not just have to hit the workforce in the traditional sense when I was laid off last mm -hmm. summer. And so there, I think there's examples like that in a lot of people's lives that it's really easy to, I think, lose compassion or empathy for um, people who have less than, than you do because you're forgetting about the opportunities that you yourself were given. Like you think viewing yourself through a, a jaded lens, you think I'm just, the, I'm the hardest worker in the room. That's how it's always been. And that's how I make things happen. It's like, yeah, but why don't you dissect it a little more? And there's probably some opportunities there that you have that other people might not have. And I'm so glad to hear you say that because I do, I mean, I know you Taylor and I think you are a very hard worker and you've done a lot to try to build your company. Um, but I also know Abby and I think just given our culture of how many male entrepreneurs there are who don't acknowledge their wives at home, mm. like running the household, taking care of the kids, like providing a nice comfortable cushion for a man to be able to go out and pursue his dreams. I mean, it's just nice for you to acknowledge that because I don't think that is often acknowledged either. 
Thanks. I like that you said company. <laughs> that just makes me feel special. Yeah, I think so too. Well, I was curious to get both of your opinions about this. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but there, so there's like the cultural context of wealth. There is also like the, the church context of wealth or like religious context mm-hmm. of wealth, um, spiritual, however you want to get to it. So one of the things that I grew up with, because I grew up in the church and I'm no longer in it, as you both know, but I, there's like, and I have to give a shout out here to Emily Slater and Becky Childs, who you both know, um, my sister and our friend. But I was asking them about this today. I was trying to remember the terms, but like prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. And then also they brought up the um, term name it and claim it. It's, it's somewhat synonymous. Like the secret. One. It's kind of like the Christian yes, secret. It, yes, it's a good description. <laughs> I grew up with prosperity gospel. And so I, this idea was that um, kind of similar. We're talking to in a cultural context, like if you are faithful enough or if you believe in the right ways or you're practicing your faith in the right ways, that God is going to prosper you. There's a very famous verse in Isaiah about God wants to prosper you. And so I. There's my, a very, very famous misquoted verse in yes, Isaiah. Yes, and I think okay. Emily and Becky mentioned <laughs> That they were like, oh, you're getting us triggered. <laughs> it's misquoting it. But just this idea, it's it to me, it mirrors what we see in the US culture. But my family did not have money growing up. We we struggled a lot. And then this idea, like when prosperity gospel teachers would come into a church and basically insinuate, like, if you just do your faith in the right way, you'll become wealthy. How damaging that message was. Anthony is like making such a face right now, but it was so harmful. And I think it's harmful in our culture in general, this idea that poor people are somehow lazy or not working enough. And they're not enough. They're not enough. And so it's so damaging when other people have gotten, you know, advantages or benefits of wealth, um, especially through like family inheritance. And there's something like wrong about you. And then you add a layer on, there's something wrong about you spiritually. It was such a damaging thing. And I'm just curious what, if you've had any experiences with that kind of mentality or teaching. Can you add a sound effect in there? Like can of worms being open (laughs) and then a squiggly sound. I just want to just say the name Joel Olstein, because I think if people don't like know exactly what the prosperity gospel is, he's, don't you think he's probably yeah, the yeah, one yeah. that pushes that the most? So. He's, he's the most famous face of it. And I'm no, bringing it no. up just in case people are listening to this and they're not Christian or not religious. It's only interesting to me. You don't have to be a Christian or religious person to find this interesting because I just, what I'm trying to point out is that this idea of wealth permeates every aspect of our culture, including our religions that if you look at the new Testament, really talk about money being pretty bad and corrosive. And yet we've somehow warped even the church to say in some aspects that money is equal to faith. Yeah, you're right. It is, it, it, there's something about both the way it's expressed at times in the church and the way it's expressed outside, outside, outside the church and have something common. And both of them are the idea that if you are just good enough in some fashion, it will be inevitable that you will be wealthy. And so the corollary of that is if you are not, then somehow you are either not good enough or in fact, actively bad in some sense. And so then if you're, if you're wealthy, it gives you a status and a privilege, not just because you have wealth, but there's an assumption that there must be something about you as an individual, like your character, your integrity, your virtue, like all of that is kind of wrapped up together. I mean, we, yeah. And then if you're not, the reverse is true. And so it, you're right. It does occur both places. I think that's toxic in both places. I am, I am not only not an adherent to the prosperity gospel, I am soundly opposed to it in every sense. And I, I don't want us to steer off into all those reasons in this particular podcast, but I think your point is well taken, Beth. 
Did you ever have any experiences with that kind of teaching or thinking? Um, no, I also didn't grow up with a lot of money at all. And so I think it wasn't really present. I, I knew who Joel Olstein was and there were at times like, so the whole prosperity gospel message is kind of one of like, I don't know, po- positivity, I think in a sense of like, you know, if you do what you're supposed to do, then there is just this untold amount of success that, that you'll be able to find. And in some ways, like that's kind of a positive message because it's saying there is opportunities in Joel Olstein's case to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars because he's been following what the Lord has asked him to do. That's mm-hmm. kind of what he's saying, you know, private jets and the whole thing. Um, it's a very convenient narrative. Yeah. I will say that. It's, yeah. It's the church version of when you buy self-help books about how to be rich. If you just do this, this, mm-hmm. this, this, you'll be rich. Yeah. It's the same thing. And yeah. that's the thing I do remember about prosperity gospel growing up in the church was that like after the church service, they would have like their table out in the lobby where mm-hmm. they'd be like selling their prosperity gospel books for like $30. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm, this is very all very convenient yeah. cycle here. Yeah. Tying in. But personally, no, I didn't really see that play out because I just felt like my parents were really um, conscious of their giving, whether they were giving what little money they had, portions of what little money they had back to the church, or if they were donating it to other causes or, you know, lending money out if people needed it, or if they were bringing someone into their home because they needed a place to stay for a couple of months at a time. So I saw a lot of that playing out and, and I was like, okay, so. Uh, being a Christian doesn't necessarily mean you're rich. It means that you have to give of what you have, I think. And so I, that's how I had it kind of modeled in my own life. And I can say that I've even seen a shift. Um, like when I was just a social worker, I, I would look and I would get my paychecks every two weeks and I would try to ignore how many taxes were taken <laughs> out of it. Cause I was just like, you know what? Be, being someone that's trying to steward dollars through social programs as a social worker I was, I was just like, eh, just don't look at the number and just do your job. And and you're going to be able to steward some of these tax dollars that are coming in. And now owning my own business and being in charge of my own spreadsheets, it is super depressing. And it would be, <laughs> it would be very easy for me to just completely change my thinking. Like I've had conversation with, with friends who the only thing they care about politically is like lowering tax rates. That's all they care about. And they've asked me, and they're like, why don't you care about this? And I'm like, I don't know. I just, I, I work with social programs. And so my number one priority isn't like getting less money directed to those programs. I know not all taxes go to social programs, but um, it just wasn't a concern of mine. Now it's something I'm a little bit more concerned about. And so I've had to be conscious of like, just approach it the same, like, like you're going to have your taxes taken out and then you need to also continue to donate to causes that you care about, whether that's giving to the church or if it's giving to, uh, I don't know, like I sent money to the Red Cross when Australia was on fire because it just felt like it was the right thing to do in the moment. Mm-hmm. You know? I think one of the reasons I was interested in like the church applications of it and the cultural applications is because getting to that sort of insidious um, nut of an idea, which is like in the heart of all of this discussion about wealth, this idea like there's something bad with you if you're poor is also really tied into this like idea of systemic racism that we're dealing with in the country. So we have so much historical evil in this country of wealth accumulation being tied 
to slavery. Mm -hmm. That's the tradition of how a lot of families in the country first got wealthy. You had free labor. I mean, that's great for and you. The simultaneous destruction of generational wealth for those who were enslaved. Yeah. And I know, Anthony, you've been doing research, but like the Tulsa massacre, you know, like black families finally, you know, accumulating their own wealth, starting to own their own businesses, becoming successful and flourishing, and then just subjected to a nightmarish violent massacre and stripping away of that wealth and power. I mean, it's just devastating. There's so many examples of that. And it, perpetuates today. And I had pulled this statistic up. I just wanted to share real quick. So at $171,000, the net worth of a typical white family is nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family at 17,150. That was in 2016. That was a Brookings mm. analysis. So the average white family is 10 times greater in wealth than the average black family in this country. You look at numbers like that and you cannot talk about wealth inequality without looking at the history of racism and slavery in the U.S. And we're at a moment where we're having really difficult national conversations about racism and a lot of white people don't want to talk about it. It's uncomfortable and we're just trying to bury it. And I think there's no way we're going to get around wealth inequality until we talk about some of those things. And I would just maybe advocate for people listening, especially white listeners, that those ripple effects are certainly felt between black and white communities, but the wealth inequality create systems that also hurt white people. You know, they, they hurt white people in poverty. So when we talk about social safety nets, when we talk about things like having free community college or universal childcare, that will certainly help black communities get out of some of this poverty that they're in, but it will also help white families yeah. get out of the poverty that they're in. So these solutions don't just have to be race-based. We come from a racist system, but we can find solutions that I think would not only help black communities, mm -hmm. but white communities also. How about this stat to add to that? Just after emancipation, African-Americans owned 0.5% of the total worth of the United States. By 1990, 125 years after the abolition of slavery, black Americans possessed 1% wow. of the national wealth. It grew by 0.5%. It grew by half a percent in 125 years. And if you, to add to that, Beth, even like after racism and Jim Crow and 1921 Tulsa massacre, when you start looking at the history of redlining and the denial of loans, I mean, it was only in the last 10 or 15 years that black farmers settled a lawsuit with the government for tens of billions of dollars discriminating against helping them. Like there has been this, this systematic repression of the accumulation of general generational wealth that gets passed on. And I, I get it there. It's not just black families that have struggled with that. White yeah. families have too, but, but the difference is that black families have often struggled with this because there has been a concerted and coordinated effort to rob them of that ability. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I'll, I'll throw in a quick stat as well. So this um, article on epi.org said at the median, an inheritance increases wealth by more than 100,000 for white families and only 4,000 for black families. So that is just staggering the difference in that, because think about what a, if you have, if you're getting that inheritance from, I would assume a parent um, and maybe they die in their eighties. And so you're already in your sixties you probably have quite a bit of your life maybe sorted out. Like you might already have your home paid off in a lot of instances. Mm -hmm. And what is that extra hundred thousand dollars doing? It's doing a ton of good in terms of perpetuating mm -hmm. probably that imbalance. Like, Oh, now I get to invest this money. I get to do all, what are you doing with the $4,000? If you're, 
Mm-hmm. If you're a black um, family, it's not doing nearly the same. Yeah. As you're talking, I, I just haven't looked at one of my notes that said poverty tends to beget poverty and wealth begets wealth. That's it's for that reason, because when you have extra wealth, you can take advantage of things like stocks and investments and interest accrual and all these sort of, um, you know, gaming mechanisms of, of banking and the investment system that allow you to keep accumulating more wealth. Poverty begets poverty. Poverty comes with high interest rates. Poverty comes with steep penalties for making a late payment. If you can't afford a car, it's hard to get to a job. Like you just sort of have these cycles. And I saw this myself with my parents. You know, if our car wasn't great and it broke down on a certain day, that might mean someone might lose a job, you know, or would lose at least the wages for that day. It all tends to be like this sort of self-fulfilling cycle that's really difficult to break out of. And that ties into what kind of educational opportunities you get, whether you can go to college. I mean, what kind of jobs you're getting. It's all it's all kind of tied together um, I, as we're kind of maybe getting towards the end of wrapping up. I want to ask you guys, like, what are, what's the solution? <laughs> we had joked before we started taping this podcast that we we're going to call this eat the rich. And I was going to do like a Bane style <laughs> thing at the end where it's just like we need to tear the wealthy down. But I think we've acknowledged that wealth in itself necessarily isn't evil, just the same as I don't think power necessarily is evil or or mis- or good. It's how you use it. Mm-hmm. But what do you see as maybe some potential solutions for like a massive problem like wealth inequality? Um, you have anything? Anthony, uh, go ahead okay, and solve so it for I, us yeah, if yeah, you would. I've, I've got it. Just give me a minute or two. <laughs> I'll approach it from um, a side that is different from like a political or social solution. The one thing that strikes me is just the importance, once again, of character. And I, I think your point's well taken, Beth. This whole idea, I believe that we are given things so that we can serve others whether that be money or power or a voice or physical strength, you name it. Like we are, we are given these things, not so that we just build ourselves up so that we can help those around us. So if I have a voice, I need to help to use my voice for the voiceless. If I am strong, I need to step in to defend the weak. If I have wealth, I need to step in and and look at at people around me and say, who can I help? Who can I be generous with? Because this wasn't meant to stop with me. I feel like we're intended to be conduits of the things that have been given to us. And so I, I'm, I'm actually less concerned about the amount someone has been given than I am about where are their hearts about using that to help those that are around them. So the, the key solution, I think, because I think you can put any type of laws and structures in place, people whose hearts are broken and bad are going to find ways around them. Mm. But people whose hearts are in the right place, I think it won't matter what the structures are around them. They will find a way to use the things they have been given for the good of the world. So that's what I keep coming back to is what does it look like for me? The the fancy word we use in church is stewardship. Uh, I I think we're called to steward what we have. And so you can give me a poor person or an incredibly wealthy person. My question for them is how are you stewarding what's been given to you? And I, that without that in place, I fear that there is no structure that will help us to address those things. That is not to say there shouldn't be structure. So if the two of you have ideas about what that might look like, go for it. No, I I echo so much of what you said. I just think about how I can try to implement these things in my own life. And it's probably a little easier for me than it would be for maybe the average person, just because I was a social worker and I can point to the hundreds of clients that I've had. And if, if we're defining success or failure by getting out of poverty or getting a home or, or versus living on the streets, like 
the ones that didn't find success very rarely was due to a lack of hard work. It was also, it was always just due to just unfortunate things that just seemed to continue to happen. So I just have to remind myself not to build up like a disdain for those people that have less than me and make sure I can serve them in whatever way possible. It's not necessarily the amount, but you know, what can I do for them? Can I add one thing, Beth, before yeah, I forget? And then you go, I, I was thinking about this earlier. I don't want to forget to say it. I would love to see our culture have an entirely different view of what it means to be wealthy mm. rather than associating with money. What about wealthy and good deeds? What about wealthy and relationships? What about like my parents, I found out when I was an adult that I think we lived below poverty level the whole time I lived at home, but man, my parents gave me a wealth of things. They, you know, uh, they, they embodied certain character qualities. They gave me good teaching. They, modeled how to live in certain ways. They did all these things that when I look at my life, I think my life is rich, but I don't mean that in terms of money. And so this isn't policy either, but I just wonder if you, if you change that perspective and you take the focus of wealth as kind of the, the be all and end all, and that's what we think of as the good life. And we, we take the words rich and wealth and we co-opt them and we move it back toward relationship and character and things like that. You completely stole my point. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> No, I literally, no, it's okay. It's, we're on the same page. I was literally going to say, like, I think tied into this idea is you mentioned like stewardship. And to me, it's also redefining what the good life is. Um, I think there's like a, a bell curve. Like I, I, I struggled as a child with the poverty that we lived in. It was hard. It was stressful. My parents were stressed. You had food insecurity at times. So I think, you know, a certain level of poverty is so stressful and harmful and certainly limits some of the opportunities that people have. And then I would say today I've been able to get into a place through luck and all the things that we were talking about, some hard work um, where I would say I'm maybe more middle class. I'm comfortable. I'm not worried about money on a day to day basis. I'm not completely paycheck to paycheck like I was for most of my life. And it definitely relieves some stress. It relieves some of the anxiety of day-to-day -day living to know that you're okay financially. Yeah. And if you, something, you know, I broke, well, it wouldn't affect me because I'm a writer, but if I broke my wrist or something and I couldn't, couldn't work for a while, I'd be okay. Like I'd be, mm -hmm. I was okay during COVID and a lot of people were not okay during yeah. COVID. So I, I recognize that privilege, but I also think like I'm in a comfortable place where I wouldn't need a ton of more wealth. Like, I don't know what that would do to me except for change maybe the kind of person I am or what kind of experiences I had. And I just want to see a way of shifting this pendulum where more people can just be comfortable. Um, I think the thing about the wealth inequality is like, what is Jeff Bezos doing except for trying to go to space? You know, like, like how is, I, I just don't know, like, what a good life would look like for him and how much that really, he needs his money to have that. Mm -hmm. um, so I wrote down like a couple of things, like certainly for the systematic things, Anthony, you talked about like, you know, we could have the higher wealth taxes. We can tax inheritances at a, at a better rate. We can reduce corporate subsidies, um, reduce kind of bailouts like that. I do think some of these are controversial, but it's because we have really ingrained American systems. I do think something like affirmative action or universal basic income could actually be practical if they were well-designed and helping a lot of people out of poverty. Um, we saw uh, during COVID that having those stimulus payments uh, demonstrably helped a lot of families mm -hmm. get through the pandemic. 
um, having social safety next, like uh, universal child care community college. I'm open to sort of like solutions that I think in our country have been like labeled as like socialistic a lot, but have demonstrably worked in countries like the Netherlands or parts of Europe where there's not over government interference. I know Anthony has some maybe libertarian feelings about that. <laughs> the, people are living their lives. The government's not overly intrusive in their lives, but they have social safety nets that allow them to have like a day-to-day satisfaction and comfort and security that allows them to focus on their families and education and defining what that good life is. So I, I do think there are structural things we can do in addition to sort of redefining what it means to live a good life. So it sounds like to wrap up this conversation that maybe the best thing we can do is figure out how can we implement some ethical behaviors in our own life in service of other people mm. while some of these other background things work themselves out, whether that's policy or major cultural shifts. I always think it just starts with our circle. And I know that's become clear that both of you also believe that too despite what larger things may still need to take place. So this was, as always, a great conversation, and we appreciate you guys for listening.